Podcast, the local government finance podcast from the United Nations Capital Development Fund, talking local globally. This podcast explores the ideas and thinking about the role of local government finance as an accelerator of international development, in line with the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Agreement. Welcome to the second episode of Capital Locust. This week, it's a privilege and pleasure to speak to Gillian Tett, chair of the editorial board and editor at large in the U.S. of the Financial Times newspaper. Gillian writes weekly columns covering a range of economic, financial, political, and social issues. And her past roles have included the U.S. managing editor, assistant editor of Capital Markets, and Tokyo bureau chief. For the Financial Times, Gillian is also author of *The Silo Effect: The Peril of Expertise and the Promise of Breaking Down Barriers*. Now, one of the themes of *The Silo Effect* is about how it's important to think transversally and to have an overall perspective across departments or areas of technical expertise. This means often thinking territorially about a whole territory rather than individual boxes within that territory. This traditionally has been the role of the local government and the local government mayor that looks from a bird's eye view at the whole town and what is required for its development. It is often not the approach taken at central government, where issues are boxed off depending on their departments. Or national agency, I will be talking to Gillian about the role of local governments in building climate resilience, the role of local governments in local development, and how it is that quite often local governments are left out of the picture by the national government negotiators at global agreements、uh, such as the Paris Agreement and the Addis Ababa Action Accords. Gillian, thank you so much for agreeing to join this podcast. As you know, United Cities and local government and United Nations Capital Development Fund have launched a, a global coalition for a financial ecosystem that works for cities and local governments. You have written、uh, extensively on the way in which thinking, if you like, gets divided up into departments or into units. A kind of groupthink、uh, develops, and you were able to, in a quite a prescient way, warn of the impending Great Recession pre two thousand eight, because within nominally responsible banks, you had these departments and little units that were selling these irresponsible, if you like, investments. And the reason why we want to talk to you is because we feel something similar is happening today. You know, if the world is going to meet the challenge of Uh, adapting to climate change, and it is going to be adaptation because it's getting too late for mitigation. If you look at the emissions, and if you believe the effect that those emissions will have on the climate, according to the scientists, if we're going to adapt to climate change, then local governments will be the units of measurement, the units of action. Uh, the units of mobilisation、uh, and you know the units of convening, if you like, to get this done, it, particularly in the developing world, in countries like Bangladesh that are urbanising at an extremely rapid rate, and the infrastructure is just not in place, and there's going to have to be finance 
for the kind of infrastructure they need to make their cities resilient. Yet, when it comes to the Paris Agreement, local governments were not even mentioned at all in the early text. The same for the financing for development at its Ababa Action Agenda. So, I mean, from your perspective in writing about silos, how could it be that such an obvious agent of change uh, to meet a global challenge is not even considered when governments come together to make the financial rules, for example, for the Green Climate Fund, to which local governments are ineligible. You raise a very important point here because um, I've often thought it's a great irony that the main body of international cooperation is called the United Nations, which suggests that the only thing that matters in life are the nation states. And of course, as we all know, local authorities are often as important, if not more important, in terms of actually getting action done than the nation states. So there needs to be a lot more focus on cities, on municipalities, on counties, on sub-national levels, simply because that's where most people actually regard the main provision of services from coming from, and they are going to be crucial in terms of the fight against climate change. So why, in your opinion, are they not considered when it comes to the big declarations, agreements? Is it because of political economy? Is it that um, in some countries you know, people fear that the mayor of the leading city wants to be the next president and they don't want to give them uh, a way in? Or are there deeper reasons as to why they're just not considered? In fact, people talk about bringing the private sector in, bringing civil society in. They rarely talk about bringing local government in. Why could that be? Well, I think the key problem is that the people who represent different groups at the United Nations and IMF and other big international bodies are overwhelmingly the nation-state actors. And it's an old rule of politics that if you are in possession of power, you don't want to willingly give it up. And so there's an awful lot of resistance right now to actually doing anything that might give up power to other bodies, particularly if they haven't been elected or haven't had to fight elections. So that is a key part of the problem, I think. Another big part of the problem is simply, you know, bandwidth issues. But, you know, groups like the United Nations or IMF can't cope with multiple actors, usually, and they want to have someone clear to deal with. So taken together, I think there's some of the big reasons why city-states tend to get um, overlooked. The irony, of course, is that for most ordinary voters, citizens, um, inhabitants of a country, their main connection with organs of government tend to come from not national state institutions, but from local ones. That's very clear, and thank you so much for that response. And I think following up then, looking a little bit at the private sector, I mean, as you know, in the U.S., there is a very uh, heavily developed bond market and therefore municipal bonds. And local governments can borrow very cheaply. And when it comes to other countries, particularly developing countries, local governments are sometimes seen as a huge liability, which is strange given that they are rapidly growing, land values are rapidly increasing, and that their tax base is rapidly increasing. So in a sense, they are better to invest in a growing proposition than in, in something which is declining. And so they are actually growing in their financial power and their financial weight. But it seems that there is a perception issue when it comes to investing in local government amongst investors. But in your view as, as a financial journalist, how much does perception play a role in the pricing of risk? 
Well, part of the problem is that if you are looking to invest in so-called emerging markets, there is such a multiplicity of different countries with different conditions that, frankly, you're faced with information overload. And it's incredibly hard to work out how to assess risk. And so many people tend to go to the nation state level, even though, ironically, if they looked at cities, it might be easier to actually measure risk and also, by the way, I should stress, assets in cities rather than nation state. So a lot of it's simply about the lack of data, the lack of experience, and the lack of clarity around property rights sometimes as well. I suspect that's going to change, but the reality is the nation states don't have much incentive to change that because it's much easier for them as power and financing ability to save the nation state level rather than the local level. Absolutely. And in fact, there's a huge market out there. And we've recently created um, something called the International Municipal Investment Fund, which will be managed by Meridium, a fund manager based out of Paris. And we will provide a pipeline of investments to this fund with the objective of testing out and showing investors how, in fact, cities and local governments can actually drive the investments that need to be made in climate resilience, in local economic development, and in the sustainable development goals, but also pay a return. And we're hoping to make the case to the IMF and others, and of course the domestic regulators in each country, to open up the bond markets, to open up the capital markets to local governments. Now, one challenge, of course, as you quite rightly mentioned, is trying to get the international capital to take this issue seriously. And we're arguing with pension funds that the best way to invest somebody's pension is to invest in something that will be delivering a sustainable world into the future. And your pension funds need to look again at their asset allocations to make sure that they're putting their money in places that guarantees there'll be somewhere for us to live when we get older. Again, from your perspective, why are pension funds so conservative when it comes to looking at innovative investments, which might be safe investments, but are outside their comfort zone? And how can we change that perspective uh, from them? A lot of it is down to bandwidth issues and familiarity and the fact that if you are a pension fund manager, it's you know possible to justify the fact you put money into South Korea or Malaysia or Ghana or something like that because you know, your end investors know about that. It's harder to say, well, I want to bought a huge bond issued by Accra because that just isn't that topic that people are familiar with. So that's part of it. Fixing it will partly require better monitoring, transparency, accounting, and all the other frameworks you need for any product to be developed in the international financial markets. That's a key part of it. I would say also, though, that this is a natural area for blended finance to play a crucial role because just as you have a very well-ingrained system in, say, America for the housing market and, most importantly, housing bonds, where essentially government wraps these instruments and takes the riskiest part of the deal off the table so that private sector investors feel comfortable to invest in these products, so too blended finance, in my view, is going to be absolutely critical to making a lot of these financial instruments from emerging market cities um, more acceptable. So if you could redirect some of the multilateral funding right now that's basically earmarked as aid and instead that turn that as a system for wrapping risky instruments from the emerging market or taking some of the risks off the table so that other investors could buy the second, third tranche of um, the securities, 
and that would be one way to take this whole project forward. Thank you so much indeed. And in fact, some of what we're doing with the technical assistance facility for the International Municipal Investment Fund is exactly that. We're hoping to be able to put together these financial packages that enable us to set some good examples for how this could go forward. Finally, something else a little bit more innovative that we've been looking at is actually city-to-city financial innovation. And for the reasons you've outlined earlier on, it's extremely difficult to get going because, of course, cities sit in countries and uh, the countries are very jealous of their sovereignty. But there are initial ideas about uh, diaspora funding where cities that have a large diaspora from somewhere else, that diaspora can invest in some kind of bond or some kind of investment instrument that then goes back to be invested in projects in the places that the diaspora has come from. There are also interesting ideas whereby a US city, for example, issues a bond. And as part of that, there's some kind of guarantee for a financial instrument issued by a developing country city. So these things are actually really at the frontier of finance right now because, as you know, finance is very much organized in national markets. But perhaps going forward, given the scale of the challenge, there's going to have to be ways to encourage this kind of slightly gray area if it means that money goes to where it's needed, in particular for the the huge infrastructure investment that is required in Africa. Paul Collier recently estimated that uh, if you look at South Korean urbanization over the last 40 to 50 years, as they've gone from a country with about 20% of people living in cities to a country with about 80% of people living in cities, that required a couple of decades of where the gross, where infrastructure investment was about 30% of GDP. So how to get Africa with two or three decades of infrastructure investment being 30% of GDP. This is a huge uh, sum of money which is needed if it's going to have the cities that can absorb these rising populations. Any thoughts from you on these frontier markets in terms of cross-border or cross-country collaborations along those lines? Well, I think the idea of trying to use diaspora is a fantastic idea, and I strongly urge that because it's a very natural um, way to try and get more capital and more awareness flowing back into these emerging markets. That's point one. Point two is that just as I think there's a tremendous amount of scope for using forms of what we call wrappers in finance or or essentially using multilateral money to take the first risk tranche off the table so that other investors feel more comfortable coming in. I think there's also potential scope for pooling different risky assets from different parts of the emerging market, for bundling them together to also make that more acceptable to international pension funds and other big pools of money. And that hasn't been done much yet, and it would require organization and initiative probably from multilateral bodies. But what's really needed right now is a real rethink of how the international institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, the United Nations institutions operate, away from just assuming you have private sector capital flows to countries that occur or don't occur, and or you have aid, saying, listen, let's use the international aid money we have to try and spur these private sector flows in a very organized, systematic way through risk pooling and essentially through wrappers of instruments. To my mind, those could be some of the most transformational steps that you know could and should be taken. The one last point I'll make is that if you're trying to raise international investor support, one of the keys is to have a clear-cut story 
and tangible assets or revenue flows underpinning anything that you're issuing bonds against. So if, for example, you're trying to issue environmental bonds, some sort of green bonds, trying to show that you're going to have clean water supplies, trying to find a tangible story about, say, better sanitation, you know, about retrofitting houses to reduce carbon emissions or something like that, it's a lot easier than a general intangible story about development in a broader sense. Thank you so much. So indeed, we're trying to put those instruments together. We have something called the Local Climate Adaptive Living Facility, which puts together that story, if you like, with concrete specific examples of how a particular locality is facing a particular climate challenge. And that can be identified best by the people that are facing that challenge in that locality. And therefore, there is a, an investment that can be designed to reduce that particular vulnerability. Also, there's an initiative developed with the Swiss government called Blue Peace, which is about how we can manage water across transboundary water catchment areas and to deliver piped water, which is cheaper per unit, of course, than bottled water. So these are providing that narrative, and I think that's a great piece of advice. And we will seek, I think, as we take forward these investments with the International Municipal Investment Fund to get that narrative in place. I should add that the, the, one of the funders of the Local Climate Adaptive Living Facility, the European Commission, together with Sweden, are very much involved in the whole question of urbanization. And they, I think, see that uh, the amount of infrastructure investment required in Africa and the urbanizing parts of Southeast Asia and the availability of that investment is still a long way from bridging that gap. And I think having that narrative and these uh, innovative instruments will help us to do that. So that's very helpful advice, particularly on, on the story. I think uh, that's also a role of the press to get that story out. It's coming more and more, but you still see the press reporting on climate change in terms of the failure to agree emissions targets or, or cutting back emissions. And I don't think... You know, we haven't yet reached the tipping point where the press will start to report on how we are making ourselves resilient because it's a seismic change in mindset that needs to take place. And we haven't quite got the scale of reporting in that. You know, Greta sailed to New York in her boat and things like that. But this is still seen as a celebrity thing. It's not seen as something serious. What do you think it will take for the mainstream media to start um, panicking, if you like, and to start measuring, you know, city by city, how ready is this city? Or will we leave it till it's too late? Well, I think one of the biggest problems in the way that the climate change story is reported is that for far too long, it's been regarded as a story primarily about societies and science and with government and politics thrown in after that. And, you know, that frankly is very important. Um, climate change is about science. Let no one lose sight of that. And it's also very much about societies and how they will be impacted. And government and politicians and policymakers have a crucial role to play in trying to set a response or not. However, I work for a paper called the Financial Times, which is all about finance as well. Not just about finance, but about the belief that money makes the world go round and sometimes doesn't make the world go round because the money doesn't go around. And if you want to understand almost anything in the world today, you have to at least have an awareness of where money's going, how it's allocated, who's getting it and who's not. 
And this really, really matters in the climate change story because the question of whether businesses are basically financing activities which are adding to climate change or actually trying to combat it is an absolutely crucial story of our age, along with the question of how investors are helping this or not. And people often think it's really up to the government to spend money to fight climate change or to get the innovation to mitigate it. And the reality is that governments are running out of money. What private sector does matters enormously. So a few months ago, we at the Financial Times became the first major media group to launch a dedicated platform called Moral Money, which is looking at this green finance world and green business world. We called it Moral Money not because we want to sound religious or pious or holier than now, but simply because we're trying to capture the idea that a group of people in the world today are starting to realize that all money has impact. It's either a good impact or a bad impact. And what's changed in the last few years is that some people have started to say, we need to look at the impact and think about it in relation to climate change and much else. So we've been running a series of stories. Um, it's updated daily on what's happening in the sector. We launched this new platform, Moral Money, in the face of quite a lot of skepticism from some people who said, well, this sounds a bit hippy-dippy and marginal. But I'm delighted to say it's turned into one of the best-performing new products the Financial Times has ever launched. We have an incredibly high open rate. I hope that everyone listening will sign up to our newsletter, um, Moral Money, which you can find on the FT website. And what that shows to me is that people have a voracious appetite in the financial and business world to find out about this sector and really get better awareness of it to work out how they can contribute and also work out how they're going to avoid being damaged and sentiment shift. And if people have a voracious appetite for that information at the Financial Times, I suspect they have similar appetite elsewhere. So if you're asking what can the media do to try and change the narrative, yes, we need to cover the science properly. And yes, we need to be aware of the social implications. And yes, we absolutely need to hold politicians under the spotlight um, to make sure that the pressure keeps on them to actually act. But we also have to cover the financial and business implications too. And that's what we're trying to do with Moral Money. Thank you so much indeed, Gillian. So extremely interesting. Uh, United Nations Capital Development Fund, which is basically works in these innovative financial products. It's a rare entity with the UN. It's a kind of mini capital development fund embedded in the UN. We'd be quite interested to take that conversation further. I'd certainly encourage all listeners to take a look at that. I think we are the only mainstream media publication right now that um, is basically fascinated by the kind of geeky work that you're doing at the United Nations in terms of developing a new product. In fact, we're passionate about this. I mean, the Financial Times is basically staffed by a group of curious geeks. Many of our readers are also curious geeks, but we're curious geeks with a big conscience, and we're keen to know how finance, frankly, works for the good. And that is what um, a lot of the UN work is around at the moment, and it's something we're very, very keen to illustrate and to illuminate. Thank you so much indeed. You in CDF also like to think of ourselves as curious geeks. I think that's a really nice expression. And the bit of you in CDF that uh, you're talking to is the, the kind of local government finance bit. 
So we're certainly geeky about that. And uh, so, Gillian, thank you so much. We're just going to ask a couple of these binary questions at the end that we ask to all the people on the podcast. You have to pick one of the uh, two choices. You don't need can to I say why, but you can if that. you want. I'm please sorry? Can I, can, I, can I add in one, one other thing I want to briefly mention or talk about? Absolutely. Please go ahead. Anyone who's looking at local government finance in relation to climate change should keep a close eye on New York right now, not just because New York likes to think it's the center of the world, but also because it's setting up events quite soon, which could be incredibly important for cities around the world. Essentially, after the Sandy storm um, a few years ago, New York has known that it has to scurry to improve its environmental defenses. And the New York City Hall has recently appointed a very innovative Danish architect who's going to be designing some of the really um, cutting-edge, innovative city defenses for New York in the next few years and hopefully installing them. They're architecturally striking, but they should also be providing a seawall around New York. And the really interesting thing is that I think there's a good chance this will be primarily financed by the private sector in the form of debt security, since New York is a major capital market. They think they can do this. So anyone who's in this area, I'd say watch this space, because what's going to happen in New York soon is going to be a massive test of whether green finance can work, whether you can actually use the capital markets to finance an ambitious urban local project um, through local organizations, not city or sorry, not through federal organization or national organization. And if it works in New York, watch this space because I would imagine that could provide a template for cities around the world to copy, even or especially including those in the emerging markets. Absolutely. No, that, that that's critical. And um I think it's, I mean, New York and, and a couple of other big cities suffer from these quite unique climate challenges. Um, but uh, they're unique in, in the sense that every city has its own challenge. But when you go to somewhere like Bangladesh, uh, you see uh, extremely low-lying, um, rapidly growing urban centers that are going to suffer from pretty much the same type of issues in terms of cyclones, and rising sea level. The recent uh, hurricane in Mozambique was another good example of that. Uh, the Mozambique second city, Beira, was 90% of the infrastructure and it was destroyed. So we will be watching this space. I think it's, it's, it's important to, to, to look at how it's done. Maybe blended finance will be needed to make something similar work in somewhere like Beira. Uh, but I think it's, a, it's, it's crucial that uh, the world learns from well, I, sh I should say that cities learn from cities. And I think one of the, the interesting things about working in the cities movement is that the distinctions between north, south, east, and west break down a little bit. And the, the, the geopolitics that you referred to also breaks down. And when mayors are talking to mayors, there is a, a much greater cross-fertilization of ideas. I mean, going back to the early comments on, on, on silos, those silos break down, those cultural silos and kind of regional global silos uh, break down because they're all dealing with the city challenges. So thank you so much indeed for, for mentioning that. A couple of binary questions just to finish with. As I said, you don't necessarily need to give a reason, but the first question is 70s music or 80s music? Um, 80s music because that was when I was a teenager. Okay. Uh, next question, uh, as uh, somebody uh, from Britain living in the US, uh, baseball or cricket? And you can't say neither. neither. 
<laughs> I find them I find them both excruciatingly boring. Um, but on balance, cricket because you can sit there and drink pim. Absolutely. So, Gillian, thank you so much indeed. Thank you very much. Great. All right. Best of luck. Thank you. Thanks. Thank bye. you. Bye bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode. This is Capital Locust, the local government finance podcast from the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank you.